Good morning, church family. My name is Jovita Dennis. I am the facilitator of So Time North, but I'm also a very proud member of the University City Community Group. Yes. <laughs> we have lots of children, so we would love for you to join us. Um, we're actually getting together this afternoon, so if you're interested, please see me after the service. I will be reading from Judges 16, chapters 1 through 31, Samson and Delilah. Samson went to Gaza, and there was a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. After this, he loved the woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pen and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me 
where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that, he told her all his heart. And she went and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lord of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, to the, Philist- she said the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which this house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed one, bowed, I'm sorry, then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Javita. I was very encouraged when I knew she was going to be reading. It's nice when a principal, public school principal reads before you go. It helps make everybody, everybody understood everything. 
So we're done, because the Scripture preaches itself, right? Um, good morning, Christ Central. My name's Dave Grigg. I have the, oh, just the greatest honor of being one of your elders. Um, and my wife, Bonnie, and I are members of the East Charlotte Community Group. Pastor Josh said I needed to tell you more. That was all I planned to say about ourselves, but Pastor Josh said I needed to say more. So we live about 20 miles that way. And maybe that's part of the deal about having the Sunday school, and we encourage you guys to be involved in that. And, and when we, we all talk about what community groups we're in when we come up here, and you hear the different parts of town that are mentioned. This is a regional church, and so building fellowship won't just happen if we don't do it, if you aren't intentional about it. So I echo just the encouragement to be involved with the, uh, Sunday sum, the summer Sunday school this year, uh, to, build, to build some relationships for the kids and, all, and for all of us. So please, please give that consideration. As we start, let's uh, pray. Lord, thanks for this chance uh, to talk to these precious folks, my brothers and sisters. And I ask you to come and, and guide me, guide them, give us all ears to hear. Lord, if there's anything I plan to say that should not be said, I pray you'd snatch it away. But what is from you, I pray you would help us to apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to stand up and sit down some. So don't let that throw you, but just so you know. When I sit down, it doesn't mean anything's wrong. I've just gotten a little bit tired. Um, but why did he tell her? I mean, what in the world? What's he thinking? Right? You know, and on the surface, I was joking with, with uh, Dr., Dr. Corey before uh, the service um, to put it in PG terms. Um, on the surface, there's lots of possible answers. Maybe he loved her. Maybe the sex was great. Maybe they were codependent. Certainly, they were using, each was using. Samson was using Delilah, and Delilah was using Samson for their own needs. That was definitely going on. But that still doesn't explain why he told her. It doesn't explain why he thought he'd get away with it. It doesn't explain why he thought he could tell her the real way, at least so far as he knew, we'll read the passage in just a minute of what the angel told his parents before he was born, but why he thought he could tell her the truth as to what he, so far as he knew, would be the way to remove his strength and somehow escape unscathed. This was not an attempt at suicide by Samson. He did not believe he was going to be harmed. Commentators are pretty uniform on that. He thought he'd get away with it. Three times. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. Seven bowstrings, new ropes, weaving his hair. She handed him over each time. So he goes along with the fourth time? I mean, that's just almost incomprehensible. Telling her how to eliminate his strength, he knew exactly what would happen if he said, shave my head. She would shave his head. And... If it worked, from her perspective, she would hand him over to his enemies. He thought he was invulnerable. He thought his strength was his own. Did you catch what it said? He didn't know. He didn't know the Lord had left him. When his head was shaved, he still thought he could get away. He knew his hair was gone. He thought, he thought his strength wouldn't be gone. He didn't know the Lord had left him. He thought his strength was his own. 
How did he get there? We didn't have time to read all of the first three chapters. We're going to look at some of it really quickly. But how did he get there? And y'all, more to the point, how did we get there? Because you can't read about Samson and not think about us or any of these judges. So flawed. God uses them for good things, but so flawed. We have to think about ourselves when we read these. The first answer is the first point in our outline, the nature of sin. You know, having sin in your life is not like having the flu. You'll eventually get over the flu. You might even develop an immunity to the flu or to whatever disease it is. Sin's the exact opposite. Sin left to itself doesn't diminish. It increases. And you do become immune, but you don't become immune to sin. You become immune to conviction. As a friend of mine used to say, your conscience becomes seared. Things that used to prick your conscience and say, you know, I shouldn't be into this. You do it enough, later you're not thinking that anymore, and then actually your participation in the sin and other sins increases. That's the nature of sin. And we develop an immunity or a tolerance for being convicted, or an immunity or a tolerance to our consciences, crying out to us that what we are into is wrong. Apart from God's grace, sin increases. And that was true for Israel as a whole. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the increasing nature of sin in context of Israel and then specifically Samson's life. As, as Vaughn talked about or, or read to you as, as in the call to worship, Israel had a cycle, and we, we see it it's throughout the Old Testament, but we see it particularly in the book of Judges. They would sin, turn to idolatry, fall away from the Lord. Let me get this out of the way. They would sin, fall into idolatry, turn away from the Lord. He would send an oppressor, the Moabites, whoever, the Philistines, who would conquer them, subject them, to put them into slavery, servitude, circumstances they hated. After some period of time, they would repent. The Lord would send a deliverer, typically a military-type deliverer, who would judge and would lead them out of bondage to some sort of restoration of freedom. And for the lifetime of that judge, generally, Israel would remain faithful to the Lord, and then as soon as that judge died, they'd spin again. But the thing about the circles is this, and this is about the nature, the increasing nature of sin. It didn't do this. It did that. Every time they go into a new cycle, you'll see it. Look, look, read the book of Judges again. Look, look at the years involved. The sin is deeper, goes longer. The, repent, the, the oppression is heavier and more encompassing of the whole country. The repentance is slower to come, takes longer, isn't as complete. And every single time, the judge ain't quite as good. We'll talk about Samson in a second, but he's no Othniel. He's no Deborah. He's not even a Gideon. Sin increases. Even as you repent and recover, you're not quite recovering because you continue to give in to it. So much so that by the time, by the time they're talking about Samson, Israel's hit near bottom. There's no repentance. There's, in, for Samson's story, no one repents. Samson himself, there's, as, as we'll talk in a moment, the only clear evidence that he becomes 
a faithful believer is in the last couple minutes of his life. But no one else repents. You, you ever wondered, well, why, Samson? Why is there this uh, Judeo-Christian version of Hercules, this, this strong, Ibrahim and I were talking a second ago, how, how big he must have been or not been to put hands on both pillars. Maybe he was a giant. Maybe he was a normal-looking person. The Philistines seemed to believe his, his strength was a product of something supernatural rather than that he was enormous. But um, in any event, have you ever wondered why he had to have great strength? Because he wasn't going to lead an army. No one was coming with him. Read Judges 13, 14, and 15 and see how the only involvement, other than his parents who warned him off, the only involvement the other Israelites have is trying to hand him over to the Philistines so that they don't get in trouble. He has no help because Israel has sunk. This repeated cycle has just eaten them away. And if you want something really depressing, read the three chapters beyond Samson. So glad I didn't get asked, Pastor Josh didn't ask me to handle those passages. Because there's no hope there. Other than that you know someday Jesus will come. It was just Samson. How did he begin? Judges 13, 1 through 5. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That time period increases through Judges. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to him, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold... You shall conceive and bear a son. Here's the thing with Delilah. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite. There are other Nazarite restrictions, um, but that's the one that we're told here. He shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall, and here's the word you've got to remember, and this shows the cycle, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. It's not going to be like Gideon. It's sure not going to be like Deborah or Othniel or Ahud, who for a time got everybody out. Samson, on his own, kills a lot of Philistines. Did you catch the part at the beginning of chapter 16? They waited. They, they knew he was with a prostitute, but they wait till dawn. They said, come on, let's, let's wait till dawn. Oh, yeah, we'll jump him then. They didn't want to take on Samson at night. They wanted to take him on in the daytime where maybe superior numbers would help. But he had nobody with him. He had nobody with him. And he had the, I mean, the Lord did it to the extent that anything good happens in his life, and good things do happen at times. It always says that the Spirit of the Lord came on him. And then just as often it talks about he sees something and goes after it, or he has hot anger and goes in that direction, things that the Lord weren't telling him to do. So, Israel's fallen so far that all Samson can do is be part of beginning deliverance this time. In an earthly sense, that deliverance wasn't complete until generations later during King David's reign when he finally defeated the Philistines. And of course, in the only sense that really matters, it's not complete until Jesus. In addition to Israel, we see the sin in Samson's life, the nature of sin specifically in Samson's life. Not an admirable figure. Not a role model. 
like I would argue Othniel or Deborah would have been. If you've got kids, take a look at their children's Bible. Look at how Samson's portrayed. I pulled out my daughter's and looked. He was just this big, strong guy, and he loved the woman named Delilah, and that's pretty much all you get. It's a whitewash. It's just not accurate, and I think that's, again, it's kids, and you've got to be appropriate because Samson's particular proclivities were of a nature that are difficult to talk to small children. I get it, but still, it, it was, it was uh, we, we shy away from that. We just want to talk about a strong guy as if somehow that's what it was, and I think that's not really the story. So Samson was to begin throwing out the Philistines, but Samson didn't himself begin well. A quick summary of Judges 14 and 15. Um, very right out of the chute. And you've got to remember, there's more to Samson's life than those two chapters, what's in 14 and 15, until we get to the encounter with Delilah. But this is what the authors, and, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of work. This is what we needed to know. So we're always saying, why are you telling us this? Well, it's pretty clear when you go through it quickly, like we're about to, what, what they want us to understand. Samson starts out by his, his first sin that we know is he ignores the advice of his parents. He sees, he comes back and says, I've seen a Philistine woman I want to marry. Isn't it funny? He winds up blind. His eyes. Samson's eyes were a big part of his problem. I mean, they could have broken his legs. They could have cut his legs off when they captured him at the end. Instead, they blinded him. Interesting how that worked. Because from the get-go, his eyes are part of his problem. He ignores his parents' advice. He marries outside of, of Israel. He sees a Philistine woman he wants to marry, and he just wears his parents out, doesn't listen they say, what about someone we know? What about someone from Israel? He won't hear of it. We see that Samson had a particular problem with lust and, and with pride, and, and it got worse as time went. It didn't get better. He didn't get over it on his own. It got worse. Then there's the, same, the story of the lion, and I'm, I'm, that's the first time we see his great strength. A young lion uh, attacks him, and Samson tears it apart says the way someone would tear apart a young goat. I could not tear apart even a young goat, but evidently back then people could. But he tears apart a young lion the way everyone else would tear apart a young goat. And later, when he comes back to the body, there's honey growing in it. And he takes some of the honey and eats it, and as this passage reads, takes it home on his hands, evidently, and shares it with his mom and dad. Problem. And the scripture actually tells us. This is why the scripture says Samson didn't tell them he got the honey from a carcass. Carcasses, in other words, things that had died other than by being slaughtered for food, you weren't allowed to touch or touch anything that had touched them, particularly if you were a Nazarite. As a young man, years, 20 years probably before the encounter with Delilah, he's already not keeping his Nazarite vows, and even worse, he is through the sin of omission, not telling his parents where it really came from, allowing them to do something that would have violated their consciences if they had known about it. That's the guy. We see that Samson had a particular problem with lying. Think about the whole game with Delilah at the end. It's all about lies. He started young on it, and it kept going, and he didn't just get over it. He had a problem with lying, and it got worse. Then the whole deal with the, with the girl from the Philistine town that he wanted to marry, he, gets, he shows up for the wedding, and for whatever reason, he tells them this riddle. 
I don't know that that's an ancient form of gambling or if it's just pride or trying to show how smart you are. Or maybe he wanted to brag about there was a deadline somewhere that he had killed and no one else had done that. But he tells them this riddle. Uh, and the answer to the riddle, of course, is a lot what is stronger than a lion, what is sweeter than honey. And in a forecast of what's going to happen with Delilah for seven days, his wife, during the, the feast, before, before they, after the wedding ceremony, but before they've consummated their marriage, during the seven days, she, she pesters and pesters and pesters because her people want to know how to answer the riddle so that they'll get the clothes that, in other words, this, this wager that Samson made, I'll give you 30 uh, sets of clothes if you can answer, and if you can't answer, you give me 30 sets of clothes. What, who knows what, why he wanted to do that, but he did it, and it was wrong, and it goes badly. The, her family press the young woman into telling them, or to pre press her to press him to get the answer. Eventually, he tells her violence ensues on a couple levels, some of which the Lord is part of, but what the Lord was not part of is the Philistines, when they realize it's gone against them, they take that girl and her father and they burn them to death. Those people are killed. Ultimately, a series of causes, but ultimately because in his pride, Samson thought it was a good idea on his wedding night to make an adversarial wager with his in-laws. What? And it gets worse. He goes to a prostitute. Now we're, now we're in chapter 16. Commentators I looked at were all, all pretty clear that it only tells us of this one trip to a brothel. But the fact that it's there in that time and the way it's written probably is sort of a signal to us of a, a pattern. And by the way, in verse 16, we now are after 20 years have passed. He's been judging Israel, again, more like militarily leading or going out as his own sort of super commando and having battles with the Philistines. They're still oppressed as a people. They still, his friends, the people that know him, the people can, that can find him when he hides, they still try to hand him over to the Philistines because they're more afraid of the Philistines than they are of him. But he goes, to a, he goes to a prostitute, at least one. And then finally to Delilah. Where his dishonesty, his lust, and his pride all come together catastrophically. He's captured, he's tortured, and perhaps worse, he's humiliated. Samson became little more than a circus freak. On display for the Philistines who did not fear God and now no longer feared Him. <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great if, if we came to faith through victory? Wouldn't it be super if, if it was our strength that led us to trust and follow the Lord, that the, that the ups, the wins, the successes, the good days led to faith if God worked through those ways? to bring us to faith, and, and, and sometimes he does, no doubt. I'm sure many of you may have stories about that, but I think it is more common, it's certainly more common for me in my life that it's the getting beat, it's the loss, it's the I messed that up. I wish I hadn't said that or done that. And certainly in Samson's case, it was not through victory. It was through, it was through crushing defeat and humiliation that God finally brings him to faith. God humbled Samson to bring him to faith, and he frequently does the same with us. 
He humbles us to bring us to faith. He continues to humble us. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it also be great if once you become a believer, then humbling stops? Then I can revert to pride and success. Nope, not going to. Might, I mean, might, probably not going to be your, your story. And uh, he humbles us to bring us to faith, and he continues to humble us to grow us in our walk following him. How about me having to use this stool? I bet I'm setting a record in the church for somebody sit, having to sit to deliver a sermon. But if I want to talk to people that I love about something important, I've got to sit on it. That's how it works. But can you see that humbling is a gracious response from God? Even though Samson no doubt had hated the circumstances, and it cost him his life, his earthly life anyway. I believe that what happened to him and this stool and everything in between would be probably what C.S. Lewis would call a severe mercy. That's a whole other topic. If Pastor Josh ever lets me get back up here again, we'll unpack that one. But can you see that that, that Samson's life, that my life, that your life, that the losses, the sin, the getting beat, the things we regret, the do-overs we wish we had, do you see they point us to the need for a real Savior? Not just a guy who could throw his fists and maybe run some Philistines off or bring the house down on top of them. Samson's sins, his failures, the incomplete deliverance he provided, provided point us to his and our need for another Savior. We need a perfect Savior, someone ultimate, someone eternal, someone, someone who is Jesus. And the good news is this. From Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all, not some, all, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, how? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No boasting in our faith, no pride in our faith, dear ones. None at all. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How does Samson fit into that? There's no conclusive evidence. By the way, I'm pulling heavily from uh, material that that Tim Keller put out more than 25 years ago. I already knew I would be speaking today, I guess 16 days ago when he went to be with the Lord, but I want to do right by acknowledging I'm just heavily, what I'm saying to you today is heavily influenced by him more than any other commentator or scholar. There's no conclusive evidence of faith in Samson until the very end, Judges Chapter 16, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my eyes. And as Dr. Keller wrote, observe the humility of Samson's prayer, the God-centeredness of it. For the first time, 
Samson uses the term Adonai, sovereign, God, Yahweh, Lord. He, had, he for the first time, acknowledges God's sovereignty. He acknowledges God's lordship and also refers to God as Elohim for the first time in the book. There we go. Struggling with my page numbering. But even then, his faith wasn't perfect. Did you catch that at the very end? That I may be avenged on the Philistines four by two eyes. In the midst of the moment that he comes to the Lord, that's going to result in, and we'll read it in a second, him being mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith, He's still doing it because he wants to get even with these people he hates. And he's mad about what they did to him. I mean, it'd be one thing that I may be avenged for the affront that they have given to you, Lord God, who created everything and they don't love you. That may be kind of, but I just, they did me. They did me bad. And I want you to enable me to at least try to even it up. That's, that's the extent of his faith. But y'all, it's saving faith. Do you hear that? Don't miss that. Thankfully, faith in the midst of a crisis in faith, imperfect faith in a perfect Savior is sufficient. It reminds me of the Father in Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And the passage goes on to tell that with nothing more being said or done, Jesus heals his son. It is not about the shape or amount or purity of your faith. It is about who you direct your faith towards. If you direct your faith to the real God who loves you and made you. It can be mixed motives, imperfect faith, crisis of faith, shot through with doubt if it's at the God who saves because He's doing the heavy lifting anyway. And here's the kicker. For all His sin, for all His mixed motives, even to the last second of His life, Samson is a hero. He is in heaven, y'all. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're going to meet Samson someday. And Ibrahim, I bet he's more our size than looking like a Hercules, but we don't know. Hebrews 11:32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Jephthah, the guy that, well, anyway, that burned his daughter we, that Pastor Mari talked about last week. Wow. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, what a life, and Samuel and 900 wives and the prophets. Not perfect people, awful people at times, who through faith conquered mountains and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. But still, you guys, honestly, 
that Samson can be a hero of the faith. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's outrageous. And it is outrageous, but it's outrageous to God. He bears it. As Dr. Keller put it, this is probably, as far as I know, it's his most well-known quote. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So in closing, what do we do about that? Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wherever you're at, whatever you've done, I love the way Vaughn said it, opening. Wherever you're coming from, whatever you've been involved in and remain involved in, you can confidently come to Jesus for help and salvation and grace to live the rest of your life. So let me ask you, in your life, how have you been humbled? And again, maybe it's not through humbling, but I think it most often is. So in your life, how have you been humbled? How are you being humbled right now? How has the Lord opened your eyes? Or how, if you don't yet acknowledge the Lord, how have your eyes somehow, by a force you don't yet understand, been opened to what is happening in your life? In what ways are you being, do you somehow have new insight into your life that you didn't have previously as to what's going wrong and why and what the answer might be? And in particular, where are you feeling convicted? Where is your conscience saying, hey, wait a minute, that wasn't right? For me, I almost feel like I need to give a general apology for everybody who knows me, but for me, it's, it's been a, a battle, and it's an ongoing battle with, with anger and, and, and with bitterness that can, get, can flow from, you know, there can be good anger, but bitterness is never good. It's been an ongoing battle with, with anger and occasionally some bitterness that takes root, an ongoing um, struggle. Um, it's where I was when, when Jesus found me in 1985, and it's where I am today. Do I think I've grown up in it some? Yes. I think I've grown in my faith. Counseling's been very helpful. Good friends and family have been very helpful. This church has been very helpful. People at other churches have been very helpful. But it's real. And whatever your thing is, don't wait to respond. Remember, sin left to itself advances. It's not manageable. And I'm not only talking about addictions. I am talking about addictions, but I am not only talking about addictions. It is not manageable. You cannot handle it on your own. It is not like the flu. It is not going to just get better. If God is pricking your conscience today about something you need to turn away from and turn to Him, do it now. You may be saying, I'll repent later, tomorrow, someday. Later, tomorrow, someday, you may not care. Today may be the day 
that God graciously enables you to respond in faith. But here's the glory of it. If you do turn to Jesus in faith, if today is the first time, or if I'm sure like most of us, you've been in the day in and day out struggle for a while of following Jesus, the glory is that with all your mixed motives, with all your crises of faith, then the gospel's yours. Which means, and again, it's outrageous. Gosh, I don't hope I get nitpicked about using that word, but I felt like it's what it took. As outrageous as it sounds, when Father God sees you, He sees you with the same delight, the same love, the same approval that He sees His Son, Jesus. Preach that to yourself. During our closing hymn, Pay attention to the lyrics, particularly, I don't want to abuse your grace. You're going to, but I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. And here's the punchline. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us. more than we can even begin to understand or contemplate or, or, or especially articulate. Lord, enable us to, to respond in faith, in our imperfect faith, because of your perfect love and grace. Help us. I thank you for these folks here and for others listening. We ask you to, to, to grow us in following you. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.